This episode is brought to you in part by Zondervan, publisher of The Perilous Fight, Overcoming Our Culture's War on the American Family, written and narrated by retired neurosurgeon and politician Dr. Ben Carson. Available now everywhere you get audiobooks. So we recorded this podcast um, over the course of a couple different days, stretched a few weeks apart. And in fact, um, by the time you hear this, um, some of these stats will be outdated. But just to give a sense of the kind of challenge posed by the, by the coronavirus, you know, we continue to be at various states of kind of closed economy. Um, some states, you know, sort of lifting that, but all of us kind of off to a slow start and reopening. Um, as of this recording, you know, over the course of two months, 36 million Americans have become unemployed. Um, the unemployment rate is at least 14 or 15 percent. There are some who estimate both of those numbers are underestimates. Um, there was a shocking number that came out, um, you know, uh, just the other week that said that you know, 40 percent of households that earn a total of $40,000 or less per year have lost at least one job in that household, which is stunning when you think about it. Um, you're talking about 15% unemployment, but 40% um, of the households that are in that kind of um, precarious situation, $40,000 of income or less per year, um, are hard hit by this. Um, so we really only just begun to reckon um, with the economic pain um, that this virus is producing. Uh, both the kind of general um, effect it has on all of us keeping our distance regardless of what the government says, but then also the government saying <laughs> um, and issuing what are called shelter in place or stay at home orders. And, uh, you know, the vast majority of us doing our best to comply, um, curtailing what used to be regular activities, meetups, going to restaurants, coffee shops, etc. Because all that's gone, so much economic activity went with it. And it's a major shock to the economy here and around the world. Um, the government has passed some major rescue packages as well. Uh, the most recent ones valued at just under, you know, $3 trillion. Um, and so there's a lot going on with all this. And I, and I want to note um, that there are really kind of three big questions that um, we'd like to try to handle um, in talking about this. And uh, we'll, um, we'll sort of talk about them each in turn. The first is, what should we expect from our leaders during this time? Uh, and we mean that our political leaders, certainly. Uh, we also uh, mean our spiritual leaders. And as we learned in a prior episode, there's actually, they, those two actually have more in common than we think. And so that's the first thing we wanna talk about. Second thing we wanna talk about is, what are we learning, if anything, about the role of government through all of this because of the extraordinary things different governments have, have had to do or have tried to do as a result of this crisis? And then thirdly, you know, we wanna end by asking, uh, what's our duty as citizens uh, and as Christians, uh, both to our government and to each other in the middle of a crisis like this? Um, so those are kind of our three broad topics. Um, and uh, let me go ahead and start with that first one, which is, again, what should we expect from our leaders during this time? Um, I'll get, I'll get in a, we can get in a moment to this question of whether our leaders have done these things, but I wonder, Ben, Thabiti, what do you guys think we should expect from our leaders during um, an unprecedented crisis like this? 
Well, I, I think we're going to need to expect a lot and sometimes demand a lot. Um, we, we should expect um, clear communication and transparency and reliable information, even if it means um, slightly slower information in order to make sure that it's reliable. Um, things are changing really rapidly uh, and our understanding is changing really rapidly. Um, so that, that role of communicating information is, is vital. We'll need our government to produce the kinds of goods that we need in order to fight the pandemic, in order to fight the virus, or to cope with the effects of the virus. And that, that could be anything from masks to uh, vaccines, which take time. So we, we, government has a compelling interest to be involved in the production of uh, resources, whether they, whether they succumb that to the private sector or whatever. Um, but but make sure that that happens. I think is a vital, um, a, a vital role of government. And then there's something about the government stewarding. You, you've already alluded to this, stewarding in various ways the the economy and um, stewarding in various ways the the culture of the country uh, through the pandemic. That's an enormous task with, with immense complexity. Um, but there's no way for the government to extricate itself from um, shepherding the institutions, shepherding the economy of the country, you know, in a time like this. Ben, what do you think? Um, yeah, I mean, I think for political leaders, which is what I'm thinking of first, I think what I'm looking for, similar things to what Pastor T said, um, you know, transparency is a big one, living in the light, right? Speaking the truth. Um, so agree with things. If, then, if that means communication needs to move slower, then, then that's okay. Um, I think delivering news, even if it's bad, uh, is helpful. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, there is something very sobering about a president or a governor or whomever coming to you and saying, yeah, we expect 100,000 people to die. Um, and I think this is a moment where it is right to be sober. A mid-sized city of citizens is being, you know, killed off by a virus and that is a serious thing. So I do think communicating the solemnity of the moment is important. Um, you know, I think uh, I, in Rudy Giuliani, who is not <laughs> uh, aged well to, to put it lightly, um, I do remember 9-11 and him coming out um, regularly and then being willing to say things that people maybe didn't want to hear. I mean, I remember distinctly firefighters were so upset that they weren't allowed to go back in the building that they punched a New York police officer and there were scuffles and things of that sort. And Giuliana, he was like, look, if you... Yeah, just for the, our listeners' sake, you're talking about the aftermath of 9/11. Yes. And Rudy Giuliani being mayor of New York City yes. in that time. Yeah. So I'm assuming. Yeah, I'm dating myself. If I'm assuming everybody knows that. There are, um, are. There are. We hope some listeners who are too young to remember that. Well, but but, yeah. but not sure about that at all. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So he was mayor of New York City in the aftermath of 9/11, and you know, firefighters were upset because they couldn't go back into the rubble uh, and, you know, they got into fistfights with New York police officers and Mayor Giuliani was like, if you hit a cop, you're going to go to jail, which is not a popular thing to say. Uh, you know, firefighters are laying their lives on the line. They're, they're dying to save people. But he, he made a call as a leader 
um, and was very clear and concise about it. I just remember being like, wow, that was not a popular choice. Um, anyway, that's a long-winded way of saying delivering news honestly, whether it's good or bad, I think is really important. Um, it, it gives a clarity uh, to what's going to happen. I also think I'm looking for on the communications front, something aspirational, like where are we headed? Um, I, I, I felt a deficit of that from all over in this particular crisis. And that could be a function of we don't know because this, this is so much about this disease we don't understand. So, but at the same time, it, it's, you know, what's the plan? What's the three month plan? What's the two week plan, three month plan, six month plan, one year plan, where are we headed? What's, what's going to happen? Um, you know, what are the factors determining, um, you know, what we're going to do? And, and I don't know that that's been clearly laid out. I think there has been some elements of that laid out um, by various people at various levels of government, but it's never been, at least in my viewing, um, clear from the top. And, and, and so that, that makes things really difficult. So those are the things I'm looking for in the communication side. On the policy side, I mean, it's, it's tough. I want you to do everything under the sun to mitigate a pandemic with, you know, that you can. Um, and you're gonna make some mistakes. There's gonna be some stuff that the government does that's gonna be like, oh, that was a bad idea. And I think being honest about that is also needed and necessary. Um, but yeah, you should be working really hard to preserve life. Um, if we believe that these people who are dying are made in the image of God, then they are worth um, every resource we have to try and make sure that they don't die. Um, so the, the, but of course, I don't have specific policy prescriptions because I'm not a public health expert. Um, but I think, yeah, I, I want you to use all the levers of policy you have to try and mitigate as much of this as you can. For better or for worse, we're not really going to be able to judge. Well, some of it we can judge now, but a lot of this stuff we're not going to know whether it worked or not for quite some time, right? So that that makes it tough. Um, yeah, those are two things that came to my mind for political yeah. leaders. Yeah, I, I so I have a couple things, um, and, and I, I will say one or two things I think I've learned about the the sort of I'll say one or two things about the public health piece of this that I think I've learned from the the work I've done, um, but I but I think that. Um, I guess I'd start by saying, I think one thing that makes this tough in general for our political leaders is that um, not only, there's just so much uncertainty about what will work and what we know. There is so much uncertainty about, you know, the nature of the virus, right? Like, so, you know, it didn't affect children. Now it might affect children, you know, like things like that, but like, is are just evolving understandings and knowledge. You know, you're learning that the speed of science is pretty fast, but it's not weeks fast. It's months and years fast, if that makes sense. And so every scientist is working as fast as they can, but there are a lot of things we don't know. And in the midst of that, what do you do? And, and Thabiti, I'm just thinking about something you said in, you know, we, we did an episode about kind of how you think about voting for political leaders and what the sort of role of a person in government is. And the one thing that you said that stuck with me was this idea of actually, you know, a political leader is also a shepherd, right? In the same way that a pastor is a shepherd of their church. And so there is a really, really important, I think there's a reason why so much has focused on how these leaders have appeared in public. What's their demeanor been? What sorts of words have they used? 
Um, how have they both, um, and crisis communications experts talk about this, how have they both kind of conveyed the grim sense of reality, but also given people a rational basis for hope? Um, how have they admitted to mistakes when things didn't turn out the way they planned, right? And actually, there's actually a big part of this that's about being willing to say, you know, um, this is the best information we have, we're gonna try our best, and oh, this was wrong, I'm gonna try this instead, right? Um, and just leveling with people about that, which is, which is why sort of like the daily presence becomes so important in these moments. Giuliani certainly did that after 9-11, you see lots of leaders doing it now. But I, but I do think that's an important piece. Now, on, on the policy thing, I think there are a couple of things that we think we've learned, both from sort of what public health experts are saying and from what um, we've seen kind of other countries that have been successful at uh, bringing the virus and case numbers down to. Um, really, it comes down to, you know, what people, people talk about testing and tracing, right? Like you test as many people as you possibly can as often as you can. Um, and then you do contact tracing for the cases that you do find, um, where you basically, you know, find out for a known case, who did you come in contact with in the last 48 hours before you were symptomatic? You contact all those people, you encourage them to self-isolate. And if you do that right, and if you have a low enough number of cases, you can eventually contain the virus. That's essentially what they've done in New Zealand. It's what they've done in some Asian countries like Taiwan, South Korea, et cetera. Um, now, that implies something. There are lots of ways to get there, but it implies something about the, the thing government has to do, which is do what's necessary to make lots of tests available, uh, and then do what's necessary to put contact tracing infrastructure into place. The question, there are lots of questions there. What level of government handles it? How do you do coordination? And then to Thabiti's point, there's sort of a third piece of this that's separate from detecting cases. That's about sort of how much, how, how much capacity do you put into the health system to just handle the serious cases? So that's masks and protective equipment for doctors and nurses. It's also just bed space and ventilators. Those seem to be the variables every government's focusing on. And so there, is, there are a couple aspects of policy that are knowns that governments are supposed to handle. And people at every level of government have a role to play in that. Um, so those are some of the things I think that they need to do. Um, so th those seem to be what we should be expecting from our leaders. You have to be, were you gonna say something? Oh, just other two quick things uh, in terms of expectations from leaders. Uh, one is that they would be nonpartisan in uh, yeah. a situation like this. That they, they'd not be trying to make partisan political currency out of, out of such a tragedy, uh, but would actually be working together um, in, in a spirit of oneness. Uh, the second thing is it's sort of triggered by part of something you said there a moment ago, Nick. I'd like to see them work effectively with other countries. Right? I'd like to see them really uh, trading information, um, sharing resources, uh, and all the like with other countries. Um, again, for the, for the sake and the benefit of, of everybody's well-being in that way. Um, so, so I think so, so, so we've just all laid out expectations, right? Things that we think. Now, now's the time to talk a little bit about kind of what we've seen in the news um, lately, which we don't always do on the show, but I think is instructive. And you can literally look around this country, but also around the world. How have our leaders done? What have been some of the good examples and what have been some of the bad examples of some of these things, these principles we've just laid out? What have been some good examples of the things that we've been talking about and what have been some bad yeah. examples? Well, the, the bad examples are, are 
you know, easier to sort of uh, point at really quickly. I mean, again, the kind of partisan bickering that's happened uh, in recent weeks uh, around the virus, around opening the economy and things of that sort, I think has been an entirely unhelpful. Um, mm. the, the kind of speculating at the rostrum that we've gotten from the president um, from time to time has been have been unhelpful, as has been what appears to be the kind of the gagging and silencing of, um, you know, sort of key officials uh, mm. in various departments as time has sort of progressed. We used to hear from the Surgeon General, don't hear from him anymore. We used to hear from uh, Fauci more regularly, don't hear from him as much. Um, so the kind of vanishing of um, the professionals who work in these areas uh, has not been a real um, positive development either. Those, those would be a couple that come to mind really quickly. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'll, I'll point to two examples, I think, of positive leadership, um, though I will fully admit I don't know what's happened over the past like week or two because I've been kind of tuned out of the news. Uh, I thought uh, Newsom, uh, Gavin Newsom in California has done a, pr a pretty good job um, from what I understand. Um, I know that California's infection rates are continue to go up and they're not, you know, there's questions as to why. But what I liked about his response on like the communication side is he was very clear very early and he also was pretty quick to come up with a plan for reopening, which was not dictated by, you know, fuzzy feelings. But if we hit this, then we will start to reopen. And so it, it just laid out some clarity that I thought was really helpful about where they're going. Um, he also seemed to recognize the seriousness of the issue from the jump. Um, the other one uh, that I've heard rave reviews uh, from my sister who actually lives in Ohio is uh, Governor DeWine. Is that his name, Nick? Am I saying that right? Yeah, that's the one, yeah. Um, in Ohio, who again, took the threat really, really seriously from the jump, was quick to close schools, um, which I think is like a, a good signal of, hey, this is, yeah. Curious. Um, and as far as I understand, Ohio has done relatively well, particularly given Michigan not doing as well. Um, so th those were two examples I thought. Uh, so I think DeWine did well on the policy and I thought Newsom did good on, on the communicating. So the, the two, those are the two that I thought um, have by all accounts have been regarded as handling this decently well. And uh, and one's a Democrat and one's a Republican. So it, it does not, you do not need to be part of a particular party to handle this well. Um, yeah, those, those are the two that came to mind. Yep. Um, if you look um, abroad, there are leaders that I think have kind of been sober-minded and clear about it. The one that always, uh, that, that people keep coming back to is Angela Merkel of Germany. Um, so not considered like the most kind of like charismatic person uh, or the person who's just like kind of, you know, but, but just very kind of matter of fact, this is what's happening. This is what we're going to do. When she, Germany actually, its numbers got good enough that they were able to reopen. And um, even then she sort of was like, I'm a little reluctant about this. We'll see what happens. You might have to close back down again, <laughs> you know, and just being really clear with people about sort of what's going on and how it's being handled and what the tough decisions and choices are. Um, and, and, and of course she comes from actually the farther, um, sort of right part of the spec, the political spectrum in Europe. Um, you know, there are those on the left who are kind of have a similar, who I think have been doing similarly good things. I, 
I will say this, and I think Thabiti, you, you alluded to it earlier. I do think that actually, I'll, I'll put my, I'll, I'll go on a limb here and say, moments like these often call out the best in leaders across a range of the political spectrum, at least in the way they communicate, the way they think about things. So, um, you know, if you think about like, um, if, you know, if you think about like Boris Johnson in the UK, I think you ask my friends in Britain, they'll have sort of other things to say here, but like there, there's just been a basic set of things that he's done um, along with everybody else, uh, right? Like Angela Merkel, different part of politics, et cetera, those two don't get along, <laughs> right? Like, um, and then in this country, right? Like people who are, you know, on the right, on the left, et cetera, just knowing that like, I think in a lot of sense, if you found yourself leading a state or a city, you kind of realize like history has sort of tapped you on the shoulder. Um, you have a duty, a responsibility, an obligation. I think I see people really kind of stepping up admirably. I think that one thing, and again, you alluded to it earlier, is that like, I think what thing that stands out about the way the federal government is responding to this or the way Trump is responding to this is that actually, you know, the bar is actually not that high to do some basic bipartisan things um, and to say, we're gonna really try our best um, you know, to sort of put differences aside and work on this together. Um, and yet I think what we've seen um, has been a basic partisanship in that approach. I think what we've also seen um, has been a, or sort of a sense of disinterest in the role that um, the federal government can or should play in this. Um, I think that that's been really, really challenging um, to see and to watch. But I wondered if you guys agree with that. Ben, I wonder in particular if you agree with that. Um, yes and no. I mean, the idea for the economic relief package started with the White House and Mnuchin uh, negotiated with Democrats from the, from the jump. Um, and so that might be an area where the president is more prone to doing something. I think, I don't know. Yeah. So I think on that one, on like the, the CARES Act, I think it's hard to ding him on that one, considering that he did work with Democrats in Congress pretty quickly and pulled his party into spending more money than I think they probably would have. Um, yeah, I think that's true. So I think, I think, I think that's the pretty, pretty big counterexample that I, that I can think of. Yeah. Now, that doesn't, so, yeah, that doesn't mean I think Trump has done an awesome job. Um, I think he's been strongest on his efforts to mitigate the economic impact of, of COVID-19. Mm -hmm. I, I, I do think that there's a moment every leader comes to when they, and I think different leaders arrived at it at different times in February and particularly in March, when you realize, oh wait, the sort of remainder of my term in office has become about this. This is actually the most important thing I'm gonna do, right? And like people like Mike DeWine got there earlier. Um, people like Gavin Newsom got there a little bit earlier. People like Bill de Blasio, mayor of New York City got there a little later, right? Like, you know, and so on and so forth. And actually, I, I think that weird, the, the thing about Trump that I think I find the most challenging is that, you know, I think it sort of looked like he got there in March, but then it's been inconsistent since then, right? In terms of sort of how he's talking about what this is supposed to be about. And even the kind of push to reopen the economy feels self-interested 
right? It's, you know, what a crazy time thing that this happens like in an election year. You've got like, you know, November is, you know, several months away now, not now, a matter of months away. And so everything is kind of viewed through this lens of will it help me or hurt me in re-election, right? Like, um, and I mean, I, I, so yeah, politicians have a right to worry about whether they're going to be reelected. Like, so I don't, I don't like begrudge, right? But it's a matter of degree when it comes to the way that something like this is handled, a global pandemic. And actually, it's funny. If I'm your political advisor, what I'm going to tell you is do a basic competent job at handling this and you will be a shoo-in for re-election actually like do the work um and that is probably what's going to happen but um but that that doesn't seem to be the sort of path he's chosen um and and that's disappointing to me yeah i mean um i think i think there's something to that i think march was probably his his best month um and then yeah after that the april was not great and then i, I don't know I mean, I don't know, again, I don't feel like I'm clued in, but it seems like it's just, it's not on his radar currently. I mean, maybe that's a crazy thing to say, but I don't, I don't hear a lot of like White House stuff on, on COVID anymore. I do hear some talk about the economy. Um, I don't know, maybe. Remember, remember what I said earlier, Ben, about the whole like daily presence, show up, do a briefing, et cetera. Well, the I White stop those. Right, right. Well, <laughs> the, the White House tried that. <laughs> Yes. And the result was like these sort of 90 to 120 minute long ramble sessions during which stuff like, you know, touting miracle cures or spreading false information happened. And at some point, I think his own advisor said, this is this is not good. <laughs> and they stopped the briefings from happening. But you actually want, if you could trust him to project a steady presence for 15 minutes a day, that would actually be a very good thing. Well, <laughs> you know what I mean? What's better, what we were getting or nothing? No, no, no. I, I, I agree that nothing is better. I'm just, I guess what I'm, I'm just saying, <laughs> like, you know, like the, it, for most leaders, for most leaders, like I can go back like 10 presidents or something and I could trust each of the last 10 presidents to be like, sure, I can do a cogent 15 minutes about, <laughs> you know, what's going on, what to expect, what we expect from, from Americans, right? Like um, each day, you just can't, ex you can't expect that of this president, unfortunately. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think the the communication side, for lack of a better word, has been has been poor. Um, and I know we've talked about this offline a little bit more. I think on getting the federal government to do some things, I think mm. it's been better. I don't know that it's been as good as it could have been. I don't think it's as good as it could have been under the Obama administration or the Bush administration. But I, yeah, I think on on what the administration and the federal government has done as a whole it's been better than the communications effort which is an extraordinarily low bar but i think that's where yeah, the I performance think. has been more mixed sure your thoughts on this well i mean i don't disagree with what you guys were just saying in terms of um quality of communication and things of that sort um, and, and certainly the, the two trillion, three trillion, whatever the figure was on the sort of stimulus package is, is no small accomplishment. Um, I think what I would um, be, I guess what my critique about even the stimulus bill is, I'm not sure is the best is the best bill. Uh, I'm not sure is aimed in the right direction. I mean, it, um, corporations, you know, are going to get huge benefit from that. 
Um, your average citizen gets what? Maybe a $1,200 check. Um, when we're looking at uh, yeah. households that are two earner households, you know, losing an earner, that $1,200 is not going to go very far. Um, you know, so as a guy who doesn't think corporations are citizens, uh, I'm just thinking that seems like the wrong way to aim that significant package. Um, and that there are people who are in, in sort of pretty significant need because of the pandemic and the shutdown that we probably could have gotten something better done on behalf of Joe Citizen um, than we did. But you know. So just to fill in the detail around that, right? Like a couple of things about, there were a series of bills that were passed, the biggest of which was something called the CARES Act. Um, and cumulatively, the big pillars in those bills were expanded unemployment benefits. That was actually the first, one of the first bills that was passed. Um, uh, as the media was saying, kind of, uh, bailouts to larger corporations and businesses, particularly the hardest hit ones like airlines, and to some people's chagrin, cruise, 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 uh, cruise line companies. Um, there's something called the Paycheck Protection Program, which is sort of money for small businesses. And then to your point, there's checks of up to $1,200 for individual Americans. And I think to be to your point, there's, I think a lot to be said about the kind of design questions there and how much is directed at businesses versus directed at individuals. Um, and even the pay, I mean, I ha having had a little bit of experience with the Paycheck Protection Program, you know, I was working for a small business. Um, it's a weirdly designed program, right? One that um, actually is gonna end up with a lot of its aid going to businesses that don't need it um, because, uh, you know, and, and, and other things like that. So that's tough, right? And I think that like, you know, I think I've heard other solutions floated and, and there are future bills coming, right? As of the time of this recording, or at least future bills being proposed. The things we've heard range from even more unemployment assistance, right? Sort of for individuals uh, to making those checks to Americans more recurring or regular um, to doing something like the Paycheck Protection Program, but simpler where it basically just says, we will pay businesses to not lay off their workers and to support them up to a certain salary. Like basically ways of essentially saying, you know, I, I think there's a, there's a basic social contract embedded in the stay at home orders. It's essentially, um, we're gonna ask you all to stay at home. We're gonna ask you to bear an enormous economic cost for staying at home. And in return, these things in these stimulus bills are the things that are going to, if not make you whole, at least make this period bearable, right? So we're going to ask you to lose your job, or we're going to ask you to not be able to work as much, or whatever it is. And in return, these, so whatever, whatever the thing is in the bill, it should uphold that end of the bargain, as it were. And I think the work, I don't think is done yet as far as doing that. Uh, so yeah, I think, I think that's, at least that's the way I'm thinking. About it. I know, Ben, what do, you, what do you think of these various sort of policies that have been in the bills? Um, I mean, I think the CARES Act is a, is, is a good something. It's a start. Um, I don't know. I, it's tough. Cause on the one, like on the one hand, I think you're right. Like we're asking people, we're basically killing the restaurant industry and saying, right. we're going to end this sector of the uh, economy, um, for the better, for, for people's health, which, and if, yeah, if we offer nothing, that, that's a pretty raw deal. Um, on the other hand, like, I can't stop thinking about, like, we've spent a trillion dollars in a couple of weeks. We are $25 trillion in debt. We are eight years away from Social Security running out. 
And it's like, so I feel a tension there of like, yeah, I think, I think we have to do what we have to do to get through this. Like there's just, there's, there's no, I've made this point before. I wish like heck we had gotten some of that debt under control before we needed to take on a bunch of debt, but that's a debate for another day. Um, but things like the highway trust fund bill, uh, sorry, the highway trust fund, that's running out of money. Um, and so you start looking at these, these trust funds, um, and we're within a, a decade of things like not being able to make payments to all seniors. And it's like, man, that's really difficult. Like, yeah, I, I, I'm, I know we, we probably need to spend to mitigate the economic disaster that's on us now, but I really fear um, the bill coming due if we don't start making some difficult choices about, yeah, entitlements. Um, so that, that, is a, that is a pain point for me. I, th I think too though, Ben, that, that's a sort of fodder for a whole other episode, right? Thinking about sort of debt and deficits, et cetera. We've touched on that, but we haven't talked as much about it. I will say this though, would it be fair to say that even for you as a sort of a, a small government conservative of sorts, um, you, would you would almost never contemplate the government spending an extra $2 trillion unpaid for in a single fiscal year but you would say for something as extraordinary as this, that's the exception. Is that, is that fair? Yeah. I, I mean, very loosely. And some, if there's an economist listening to this, they're, they're going to hit me with a two by four. <laughs> uh, I tend to think that you want to be um, Hayek when the times are good and you want to be Keynes when the times are bad. Whoa. All right. Well, that, that requires, well, that, so that, Okay, again, that requires a little bit of explanation for our listeners. <laughs> Hayek would say austerity, surpluses, responsible management, roughly yeah. speaking. When times are good. Like when times are good, don't overspend. Yeah. And then when times are bad, Keynes, another famous economist, would say, to help, us, to help us get out of the... Again, we could have a whole other episode about that, but for the benefit of our listeners, right, those are sort of... Hayek is often considered a conservative economist. Keynes often considered a liberal or progressive um, economist in history. And, so. and what I said, I think, would be poo-pooed by every economist ever because they tend to be in their school. Well, you're Hayek in both cases or Keynes in both cases. That's right. the whole point. Right. <laughs> I, I am uh, my guiding light on policy is pragmatism, which is very American and it's probably not the best. But I think like... I. I I mean, maybe this is crazy, but I think there is a signal that you send to the country when you say, hey, we got you, even if it economically doesn't make sense. The Great Depression is like the prime example of this. I mean, all sorts of, all sorts of government programs were created to the work because there is some, even if that's an economic loser, giving people like a plan and an element of hope of like the government will hire you to whatever, improve the highway system or Tennessee Valley Authority or whatever else, that at least gives some sense of, okay, like they're not gonna leave me to here by myself to fend for myself. Somebody's gonna come and, and give me an opportunity. I think that that is a necessary public signal you have to send, um, let alone whether it, it works or not. Looks like we're trying to get towards that second big question um, that I posed, which is about the role of government. So 
to bring this part of the discussion to close, let me just ask you one more question, which is, as we look at, so we talked about what we expect of our political leaders. What should we expect of our spiritual leaders during this time? What should we be sort of looking to them for? To me, you are one of our uh, spiritual leaders as a pastor of a local church. Um, and of course, there are lots of others who are making public commentary now. What should we be looking to our spiritual leaders for? Well, in some respect, many of the same things that we're looking for in our, in our government leaders, perhaps with a different weighting, right? Um, so Ben talked, for example, about um, wanting some uh, inspiration from government leaders. Well, I think you want a, a lot of that from your spiritual leaders um, rooted in the scripture and, and rooted in faith. Um, so I think our spiritual leaders ought to be a, a, a sort of example of, of hoping in God and uh, an example of walking by faith and exhorting people in faith um, to, to, yeah, trust the Lord. I think our spiritual leaders ought to be helping us to care for each other, you know, sort of uh, kitchen table, on the ground, neighbor to neighbor kind of way. Um, and so they should continue to shepherd the sheep and perhaps give the sheep um, concrete things to think about in terms of how to care for their families and care for each other. Um, I think we should be looking to our spiritual leaders for some kind of continued spiritual input. That'll, that'll vary depending upon um, the resources, technology, theological convictions of, of your leader, but some kind of communication of God's word, um, some kind of instruction in the things of the Lord. Uh, we, should, we should be seeing that from our leaders. And then perhaps our leaders should be helping us figure out ways to serve the community. Um, ways to um, sort of not only care for ourselves, look for our own interests, but look out for the interests of our neighbors and uh, practice neighbor love in a more intentional way um, in a season like this. Yeah, I mean, I would uh, I would agree with all of that for sure. I mean, I think I think talking about the pandemic in theological terms is probably something that's really helpful. Like, you know the problem of evil is something pastors have to talk about and think about all the time. Um, but it's a little more acute when there is a legitimate pandemic happening. And so how does God's sovereignty balance with the fact that tens of thousands of people are getting sick and dying? Um, you know, how is God's sovereignty in that a comfort? Um, you know, yeah, I, I think those are the two like theological things I think about uh, intensely. Um, I think to, like that the Christian's response to the pandemic ought to look different. Um, you know, what that is going to specifically look like, I, I kind of leave to pastors to judge in their local context. I think the principle of, of neighbor love is there. I think the principle of faith in God who ordains all things for the believer's good is there. Um, yeah. Uh, and, and what it looks like to love your, unbelieving neighbors um, in this in this time I think are all things I, I really want to be unpacked and then of course there's the policy of the church which is like as the question of reopening or not reopening and what that looks like and how you can serve people of a myriad of different consciences as they come back together or don't come back together I mean you know I think yeah I, I have sensed like the temptation of of the church, big C American church 
to kind of want to rip each other apart for reopening or not reopening or wearing masks or not wearing masks. Um, I think I saw a stat that said 82% of Democrats think that the pandemic is the largest issue and 65% of Republicans think opening the economy is the most significant issue right now. And so these things have been kind of in a false way, been pitted against each other. Um, and I think you're starting to see the same kind of thing, like in the church, tragically. Um, and the, the idea of like wearing a mask is trampling my freedom or, um, you know, coming back together at all is, you know, not loving each other well. And so there's just like a whole host of really practical, pragmatic questions of how the church is going to be the church in the midst of a pandemic um, that are wildly difficult to navigate. Um, I, I am profoundly grateful that in this season, uh, I am not an elder and I have elders that I love and trust because to be honest, I can't imagine trying to balance that. And you're going to have congregants who are one side or the other and are going to be absolutely certain that their position is correct. Um, and so I think, yeah, I mean, it's something where the unity of the spirit is, I don't know, it just seems really hard, but points to the fact that any unity we do see in the church is a product of the Holy Spirit, because this stuff is hard. I will say, yeah, Ben, that makes me think about something that I was saying earlier about about Trump, and I, I don't think it's it's exclusive to him or to his party, but what you said earlier about nonpartisanship, I do think one of the most damaging things we see is somehow making our compliance with these orders sort of into a quasi part of the culture war. Like, I don't know where, I don't know how we got there. Somehow we got to wearing a mask is weak. <laughs> like uh, if you're, if you're, if you're like a man or something like that, we got to this idea of like, it is an infringement upon Liberty. Um, and I saw, I saw a, uh, <laughs> I saw a joke on Twitter, Ben, which I'm sure you'll appreciate, which is the libert a libertarian is a person who um, never figured out that the speed limit isn't there to protect him from other people, but other people from him. Um, and that's literally the calculus like at play when we talk about like masks, right? Like, which is to say it's about our duty to each other. Um, and I think that, I, I think that on the one hand, Trump, because of who he is, probably couldn't help but make this part of the culture where he could have done the opposite. He could have said, I stand with the kind of whatever it is, the progressive leaning people who are asking for this. And I make that a non-issue. Whether or not you wear a mask is not part of our political polarization, but right. So that's part of, part of it. I think if you're a Christian leader, it's, it's your duty to not play into that as best you can, right? Like whatever the circumstance being created by our political leaders. And I think that there's, I, th I think you're right, Ben, that like there's a lot of unknowns around sort of who's got the right public policy solution, this question of when you can or should, when it is safe or not safe to reopen. Like there's real uncertainty there. Like I'll totally admit that, right? And I think that part of our job, as we've talked about often on this podcast, is if you're a spiritual leader, to actually kind of be a peacemaker and to say this is you know, we don't know everything, but we're certainly not going to kind of, you know, on the one hand, you hear about kind of yelling at people in public for not wearing masks, uh, but also yelling at them in whatever for, for wearing masks, right? Because there is genuine disagreement and genuine, and the church should be a place where we don't fall into that. So I feel like, well, I feel I like, think, 
I think of the the Andy Nacelli book on condoms we read so long ago. It's like whatever. Like not that this is necessarily a conscience issue. I realize even that statement might be <laughs> might be controversial. But if I can lay down my strongly held preference to serve my brother or sister in Christ, like right. ought not I do that? And so for me. Yeah, if I'm with a brother who's really anxious about getting COVID-19, I'm just going to wear a mask. Like, yeah. Like why why would let's let's all let's all pretend that the masks do nothing. This, this is a fig leaf. Does nothing. But it makes some people more comfortable. How is that not worth it? I don't know. I I don't need to yeah, debate yeah. masks. But or, you well, know like I, I, I don't see I, it nowhere near the territory where any church leader is justified in saying let's disobey the civil authorities on this oh, right? right like there's a category for that right but like we're not anywhere close to that category right now um so that's number one is kind of it's it's actually you're on safe ground if you're a church leader to say we're going to do what our civil authorities have asked us to do and we're going to like in good faith comply with that and then i think beyond that in terms of sort of what you instruct members to do to kind of say like to your point ben it's like there is a certain amount of uncertainty. We're going to try to do what's prudent and we're going to try not to be judgmental in a time of uncertainty. Um, I do think that's important in terms of sort of how people get brought together. I don't know, Tia, have you encountered this, Thavidi, with, with our congregation or maybe just seen it elsewhere? Any advice for kind of what that, what that needs to look like in terms of how we shepherd? Yeah, I haven't really seen it in our congregation. Um, so what I've seen of it has been, you know, out in the interwebs and whatnot. Yeah. Um, I, I think the best you can do as pastors, again, is, is what we were saying um, at the top of this segment about leaders, government leaders, that is communicate clearly, right? Try to communicate consistently. I think be a little bit slower than uh, rash, uh, be more slow than rash, um, and keep at the forefront the, the sort of shepherding concern, right? We don't, we don't want to lose any sheep to this thing. We don't want to see people ill or uh, people die, worst case scenario. Uh, we, we don't want to see um, sort of situations where in being, uh, in my opinion, being premature to reopen a church, we then become sort of, um, you know, agents that are, that are prolonging um, the pandemic itself um, in unhelpful ways or uh, stressing resources in unhelpful ways. So I just think you just want to lay down get clear in your own mind whose counsel you're going to follow uh, in making these decisions, which data sources are you going to be using and trusting, um, sort of think through in your own mind what your benchmarks are for thinking that it's, it's safe to you know, reopen. Um, the, the real simple way to do that is to follow uh, at least simple sort of first, first pass, first threshold is to follow whatever the government council is in your city or your county or state. Uh, so for us, there's still a, a stay at home order until June 8th. Um, there can't be any group meetings above 10 persons. Um, we're following Mayor Bowser, who's done a good job here in DC and, and following um, CDC and others guidance. So that's pretty easy for us. But even if on June 9th, she says, okay, you can have meetings in 50 people, you know, we're probably going to be um, trailing indicators, <laughs> you know, to to what's happening in the interest of of safety and health and and life. Um, but those are just principles that elder boards are going to have to get clear on in their own mind. 
um, and then communicate that out to their people and, and shepherd likewise. Yeah. I, and I say this as a guy who has no love for preaching via internet stuff. I, you know, this is not normative church life, right? Um, and I miss, I miss the saints and miss the fellowship and miss all the things that happen uh, spontaneously and unscripted. Um, when we're just sort of being together as, as God's people. Um, but I, I don't, having said that, I, I don't sense in my own heart um, any sort of hurriedness to just sort of reopen because uh, we need to reopen. And um, it's, I miss singing. Well, praise the Lord. <laughs> praise the Lord, brother. But you'll be able to sing with other people is not going to be... Um, yeah, all that compelling let me, uh, let me, a reason. Let me push on one aspect of that, to be because sure. if, I, if I were to give you the least straw man version of the counter argument I can come up with, I feel like there's a strain I hear when I read about some of these churches that are reopening that says, you know, Sunday gathering, it's one of the most fundamental things we do. It's what we bind the conscience of our members to do. You know, should we not be sort of on the edge as regards what it takes to bring that back no. right and, and, and in, oh, so okay well so say say a little bit about why there, there's no positive constructive biblical case for being on the edge in meeting um if said meeting risks lives unnecessarily i'd have a different answer if we were in a closed country where christians were being persecuted i'd, I'd say hey actually is worth meeting, right? This, this is something the scripture actually tells us we will face as Christians um, and, and, and quite possibly suffer as Christians. Um, I think, yeah. So persecution, just, just to use, a, just to use a, a contrasting example, persecution would actually be something that I would say should propel us toward meeting uh, and a risk that scripture actually calls us to take. Um, contraction of a virus that could kill um, and, 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 and sort of contradicting potentially government orders, which we're called to submit to, uh, are not inducements to being on the cutting edge. That's, I, I just think that's foolhardy, not wisdom, um, and, and not faith according to knowledge. I think you maybe put your finger on something I've been trying to figure out, which is that there, I think there are pastors out there who are conflating those two situations. Mm. actually seeing this as a form of persecution not persecution at all people yeah. trying to keep us alive right. right 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 i think what's helpful there is like the clarity of dc stay-at-home order is very helpful very helpful right yeah. so um in virginia you know the 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 southern part of the state has has opened up more like phase one but northern virginia is in phase zero Mm. of worship can open but only with a certain percentage and you just really and i get like the heart i think well i i don't know what the heartbeat behind it is i trust that the heartbeat behind it is we want to allow people to do things that they desire to do in a safe way but the lack of precision there really puts pastors and elder boards in a bind of like all right we've got to thread this needle exactly this way if we want to do it and that 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 does present a challenge, right? Because um, for for a, for Anacostia River Church, it's a very clear submission to governmental authority. 
Um, but when you start complicating it, you know, here's a recommendation, but not a requirement. It just gets really difficult, really. But, but the, I, I, I agree with that if, if all we're keying on is the, the sort of unclear guidance of, of government. Yeah. But we have a Bible that tells us to love your neighbor, right? And, and sort of a very clear way to love our neighbor is to minimize, um, you know, the, the, the potential for contracting and spreading this disease. Um, now, I don't think that leads inexorably to one decision for all churches. Um, so I, I can see uh, the possibility of a variety of decisions that all are under the banner of wisdom, um, that are all sort of uh, motivated by love of neighbor, uh, as well as, you know, worshiping the Lord. So I don't think this leads to one size fits all, but, but clearly we have seen um, just foolish, um, foolish decisions by churches thus far. Some churches thus far. Uh, so to be to, to, clear, to put a point on it, what we're all what we're all in agreement is that bringing together you know a thousand people into a really confined space when the government has recommended you not meet that is at best very foolish and at worst sinfully unloving of your people and people around you. It's disregarding your own sheep. Uh, as a shepherd, I'm duty bound to care for the sheep, to feed the sheep, to work for their for their health. Um, to do something like this that that I know would jeopardize them seems to me to be a dereliction of duty, man. It seems to be abandoning the spirit of shepherding itself. And it doesn't take a thousand people; it could be a hundred people, right? It'd be fifty people. Um, we just don't know, and and that's part of what's difficult um, is the not knowing in this in this circumstance. Yeah, I mean, I'm thinking of some prominent stories of the news. Sure. Yeah, the big, the big thing. I, you know, I, I want to leave. I, I don't think you're, I don't think you're saying this. So this isn't a corrective. I want to leave room for churches that are complying with government recommendations and genuinely trying to meet in a safe way, um, but are still meeting. Whether that's like open air we're all 10 feet apart uh, in a field, like whatever that, like, I do want to leave space. Churches that we've heard about. Like what? The drive -in churches. Drive -in churches. Sure. The way to put it. Yeah, sure. Yeah. I don't, you know, I, I think, yeah, I think, I think it's true that, well, I don't know. I, 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 I think that each, I think to T's point, each elders group of elders is going to have to think really carefully um, yeah. and, and do the best they can. But I think that's but I think that's helpful if we think about kind of debates that we hear going on within the church and debates that are going to continue because this virus is going to be with us for a while. It's going to be frustrating. I think how long this lasts. Like we're in for a longer haul than any of us thought we were going to be in for. Yep. Um, and so if I were to summarize kind of what I've heard from both of you about leadership in this time of crisis, right? We're looking for leaders, both temporal and spiritual, um, who are going to you know, be clear communicators who are going to be shepherds, who are going to be honest and humble, who are going to kind of cop to and admit uncertainties, um, who are going to be ever trying to search for the truth in the midst of all this so that they can know how to guide their people. And if they're political leaders, so that they can make public policy decisions of consequence uh, that are going to be a help, that are going to contribute to human flourishing, which in this case means prevention of death, prevention of loss of livelihood. And that touches on everything we talked about. 
how you're organizing a response, how you're building health system capacity, what sorts of stimulus or relief package you passed. And if you're a pastor, what sorts of advice you give your people about submission and about continuing to live as Christians in this time. So, um, you know, I guess that, that, that to me is the takeaway, kind of what we should look for, our lead, look for in our leaders. Um, what we should look for in our leaders as we head toward an election, um, as we kind of watch their, the various behaviors of those leaders in various executive positions across the country in the next several months. Uh, all right, well, there are more questions to take on because the virus is such a big topic. But for now, um, Tabidi, you want to go ahead and pray us out? It's good to talk with you, brothers, man. Uh, happy, happy to lead us in prayer. Father, we thank you for the way this pandemic humbles us, if we're paying attention. We thank you for the way in which it uh, reduces our knowledge to almost nothing. We're scrambling to begin a vaccine and some kind of treatment, Lord. Uh, it, it could be that uh, late last year, we were whole world taken with hubris, thinking about our medical technology and thinking about uh, science and the ways in which science has given us so much knowledge. And here you take a, a microscopic virus and, and bring us to the dust. And so we pray you give us grace to, to truly be humbled by that. We pray to give us grace to repent. Lord Jesus, I'm reminded of your words in Luke 13 when a tower fell and, and folks, some folks were killed in persecution and the disciples had questions and, and your rather direct admonition was that unless they repented too, um, these terrible things would, would befall us. And, and so these tragedies are opportunities for us to turn to you uh, in fresh ways. And we pray that you would give grace uh, for that to happen as well, both in the lives of your church and in the lives of those who don't yet know you. We pray that they would come to ask the, the major questions uh, about life and find their answers in Jesus Christ and faith in him. And we pray for those in authority over us. We pray that you would give them wisdom to lead in this troublesome and uncertain time. We, we ask, O oh Lord, that you would provide them uh, all that they need in the way of resources and coordination all they need in the way of the word to communicate well um, so that you you would extend your grace and your mercy um, to all the country's citizens lord and indeed each country on the planet we pray that you would show your mercy father we, we praise you that despite the pandemic uh, we have nevertheless seen your grace in the midst of this time from increased time with family to uh, opportunities to really reset our lives and our rhythms, um, to opportunities to trust you in the midst of loss and of various sorts. And so help us to celebrate your grace. Um, help us to celebrate your kindness, even in the midst of this hard thing, we pray. Be with, be with all the people on the planet. Um, show your mercy in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks. This episode was brought to you in part by Just These Guys, you know? A pastor and a psychologist team up to break down scripture and psychology, empowering you to transform by the renewing of your mind. Listen today at justtheseguys.podbean.com 
or wherever you get your podcasts. Just these guys, you know? <laughs>